Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. This is from the Generation Y podcast. Ronnie Long, April 25th, 1976, Concord, North Carolina. A man enters a home through an upstairs window and rapes the women who lives there. Detectives work quickly to solve the case. Within 15 days of the attack, the woman will head to court after being asked to go there to see if she could recognize the man who raped her. After an African-American man named Ronnie Long walks by, where she is sitting, she positively identifies him as the one responsible. Police had discovered strong similarities between her description of the man and Ronnie Long and what they were wearing. With that, they believed they had the right man in custody. Later, a jury will agree and find him guilty of rape and burglary. He was given two concurrent 80-year sentences. Like so many wrongful conviction cases, It is only later that the truth starts to emerge, including the fact that there were serious issues with the investigation and the prosecution of Ronnie Long. To talk about this, we have Ashley Long, who is Ronnie Long's wife. Uh, Welcome to our podcast. Thank you um, for having me. Great. So um, maybe you can catch the listeners up on where this case stands and some of the problems that have been uncovered over the last several decades. So right now, Ronnie's case is sitting in the Fourth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. Um, His lawyers had oral arguments back in March, um, on March 20th of this year. Um, And so we're just awaiting a decision from the Fourth Circuit. They usually rule within 75 days. However, um, there is no time frame limit for them, um, and it's been a lot longer than 75 days. But Ronnie um, was able to get back into the four, um, federal court because of new evidence that was discovered by the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission. Um, they came across over 60 fingerprints that were found at the crime scene that were uh, tested against Ronnie that do not match him. And then there was a list of six other suspects that the Concord police had um, that also was not um, given to Ronnie's attorneys. Um, and <clears throat> sorry, this is, and this is um, kind of significant because um, the state in 2005 was ordered by a judge to turn over everything that pertained to this case. Um, so obviously finding this evidence in 2015 means that the state essentially broke the law um, by disobeying the judge's orders, and they did not turn this over. However, it was kind of in Ronnie's favor because he um, was out of legal options without new uh, evidence. Um, Ron, I guess there's no evidence, no direct evidence that linked Ronnie to the crimes that he is convicted of. Um, the only evidence the state has is the eyewitness identification, which is really um, not reliable. Um, they did. Allegedly, Ronnie had a trespassing charge to go to court for on May 10th. Um, three Concord police detectives, um, five days prior to court, went to the victim's house and told her that they had reason to believe the person that attacked her would be in court on May 10th. 
And then back, and then again on May 10th, the same three officers went to the victim's house and picked her up, and she was allegedly wearing a disguise, like a hat, a wig, and sunglasses, and a coat. And she sat in the courtroom for nearly two hours before Ronnie's case was called. Um, his trespassing charge was dismissed, and he was allowed to leave the court. Allegedly, that's when she identified him. However, she, the victim testified uh, later at court that she recognized him once the judge called his name. Um, Ronnie was also the only person in court, like matching his characteristics, which in a lineup, you know, they usually do people with similar characteristics. He was the only person in court with a black leather jacket. Um, following the alleged identification in court, the police took the victim to the police station where they did a photo lineup where she picked Ronnie out. And again, he was the only one uh, wearing a black leather jacket um, in the photo lineup. Um, Ronnie's current attorneys like to point out that, you know, the police, this, the victim, she was like in her 50s uh, when this had happened in 76. And so police already had a mugshot of Ronnie, so they could have done a photo lineup in prior to May 10th. They had that as of May or April 30th from his trespassing charge. Um, so they could have done a photo lineup with Ronnie's picture in it and not risk like re traumatizing the victim. Uh, you know, bringing her to court and everything. So that's just kind of significant. And Ronnie likes to point out that if she allegedly identified him, why would they have let him, you know, leave the court um, to go back to his house? Which is a good question. Uh, and so that is currently, oh, and his, Ronnie's current attorneys, um, his lead attorney is Jamie Lau of the Duke Wrongful Convictions Clinic, and they are representing him pro bono. So, What's interesting to me, at least at the outset, is they allow her to see this guy in person, and they've already planted the suggestion in in her mind that this could be the guy. She sees him, she identifies him, and and at that point, uh, you know, his image uh, gets identified into her mind, and then she uh, is allowed to view the photo lineup rather than doing it the other way around, uh, which uh, mm-hmm. would seem to be the, uh, the better way to do it. Uh, so that, that seems like egregious error. How did, um, how did the uh, trial go? I mean, w- was that really the only evidence that they brought uh, forward was her identification? Yeah, um, they tried to bring forward uh, latent shoe print, um, but the experts couldn't match that to Ronnie. It was from a popular shoe back in that time. Um, and the funny thing about the shoe print was that um, so Ronnie was taken into custody May 10th and on May 11th he was taken into the basement jail in the Kannapolis Police Department. And, uh, you know, he had heard rumors about, you know, things that would happen down in the basement cells because nobody could hear you and um, things like that. And he remembers uh, an officer, uh, Detective Eisenhower, came in to um, came into the cell and he had, you know, some boots in his hand and he told Ronnie, he's like, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. Um, you know, you're going to give me your shoes and put these boots on. And, you know, Ronnie was like, uh, nah, rather, you know, I'd rather not. And then, uh, you know, Eisenhower left and got two more guards and they come back in and that's when Ronnie was like, yeah, okay, I'll just switch. Cause, um, he didn't really feel like, you know, find out if any of those rumors were true. So that's when, he gave the uh, detective Eisenhower his tennis shoes, which um, that's how I believe we believe that detective Eisenhower tried to, um, you know, 
make a latent shoe print framing Ronnie. And that's why it's funny because he couldn't even do that successfully. Um, Because, you know, the the FBI agent who examined it said, you know, they cannot conclusively uh, make a match with the shoe print. Um, Yeah. So, um, and they try to say that there was some matches, the same brand of matches um, in Ronnie's car. Um, that they had found at the uh, crime scene. And again, those cannot be um, consistently matched to, you know, to the matches that were in uh, Ron- to the matchbook that was in Ronnie's car. Like, as if they were ripped out of that matchbook, um, they could not be matched either. And it, it seems of interest, at least to me, that uh, they, they gave him an 80-year sentence, actually two, but they were concurrent. I, I mean, that seems like a, uh, a an extremely long sentence for a rape and burglary case. Well, so actually, Ronnie was facing the death penalty before he went to trial. He was offered a plea deal, which he turned down. They said it was a plea deal of seven years. He'd be out in three, um, you know, and he's always said, he's like, you know, my father didn't raise raise us to say we did something we didn't do and I didn't do this. And he also didn't think he could get convicted. So he turned down the plea deal and went to trial. Um, now, after he was convicted, but prior to sentencing, the North Carolina legislation had changed the sentence from death to life in prison um, for first degree burglary and first degree rape. So um, after he was convicted, he, instead of getting the death penalty, he got life in prison to which his attorneys, the UNC innocent project, um, they at least, I think it was like maybe in 2008, they were able to get the state to define, you know, what a life sentence was, like the, the amount of years. And that's where it came to the 80 years of a life sentence. I see. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, uh, yeah, because I thought by the 70s, uh, it was no longer legal to uh, execute people for non-murders. I'm not in North Carolina, I guess. Interesting. All right, yeah. so so let's flash forward uh, to the present because there's a lot going on uh, right now in terms of trying to get uh, evidence uh, to be heard. And as I understand it, um, the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission is kind of becoming a barrier to some of this. Uh, what is this group exactly? What do they do? Uh, so the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission is supposed to be um, uh, like um, a neutral organization that investigates claims of innocence. And there's a there's a process that um, an applicant has to go through, and it's supposed to be the only kind in, in the nation, I guess. There's it's a panel um, of not only judges, but I guess people from the community as well, um, and there's different steps, I guess, that the applicants go through. And Ronnie's made it all the way to the investigative process. But then once they found the evidence, even though it um, was exculpatory, they still closed his case. They still closed it. Um, and they're the ones that are holding on to the evidence, the fingerprint evidence, the suspect list that, you know, so we, we actually still haven't seen the fingerprint evidence um, at all. Ronnie's attorneys haven't. Only the state and the Innocence Choir Commission have, um, which I do like to point out that the Innocence Choir Commission, Ronnie's current attorney actually used to work for them prior to um, working 
at the Duke Bronco Commission Clinic. So he kind of knows how, you know, how the whole process works, everything works there. And um, he just said, you know, up until Ronnie's case, they have, the commission had always been very open about sharing files. So it's pretty interesting that all of a sudden Ronnie's case comes along and they refuse to share the files and they're supposed to be a neutral organization. Um, but they're actually um, making it harder for an innocent man to get justice. You know, they're slowing down the process, um, you know, because they've, they've had this new evidence for four years now. <laughs> so what are you hoping um, will happen uh, within the next year or so? Well, we're hoping that the Fourth Circuit will grant uh, grant Ronnie an evidentiary hearing and then based on that, you know, vacate his conviction because, um, you know, he's innocent and the state needs to be held accountable. Um, you know, for what they've been doing, because every single the state has like shut down Ronnie at every single turn, every single opportunity he's had in the courts like has been shut down, and it's really been over BS. Um, you know, and then after nine eleven, there was a limit they put on how many times you can go to federal court, and again, his second time in federal court, you know, was dismissed due to a uh, procedural issue because his his court appointed attorney did not file the necessary paperwork, which we have a letter from that attorney stating like, I need to file this, that, you know, that specific paperwork. And then he goes to not file it. So it's like, that was pretty ineffective assistance of counsel right there. But, um, you know, and thankfully because of the new evidence, he was able to get back into the fourth circuit, but it's just, you know, he, yeah, we, we hope he is free because it's been 43 years. <laughs> and, the, and the thing that I would really like to point out to people that's most, disturbing about this case not only has an innocent man and his family suffered you know for 43 years but there's been an alleged rapist free for 43 years you know and like why does nobody seem to care about that you know that the person that committed this crime you know could have gone on to uh not only rape but rape and murder you know and and by getting away with it that's like a notch in his belt like ha you know i'm i'm getting away you know so it's just that's what's uh i guess really disturbing about it so earlier this year uh the u.s circuit court uh heard oral arguments in this case yes on march 20th of 2019 uh the fourth circuit federal court of appeals and uh is held in richmond virginia or the eastern district yeah and have they ruled yet no yep that's what we're we're currently waiting they usually make a ruling within 75 days but um they have not uh, made a ruling yet. And uh, we, you know, I mean, there's nothing I guess we can do other than just wait. What evidence was in front of them? Um, so in the Fourth Circuit, the oral arguments, we were arguing the evidence, the fingerprint evidence and the suspect list, essentially, and how we're arguing how, um, you know, that was a violation of Ronnie's rights. Because that's, that's, I guess, what's frustrating about the courts, too, is, like, yeah, you can't just, you think you can, like, lay out, it's, you know, you can think of, lay out everything that's gone wrong with this case, but, you know, it, you can only talk about the specific, you know, I guess, things that it, the filing is for. It's really ridiculous, but that's how our, how our legal system works. So, um, yeah, I was just regarding the new evidence that the commission found, and uh, arguing why the state or the federal court, you know, basically should ask the state, um, you know, 
to turn over anything else that they may still be holding on to. What has the state uh, suppressed in this case in terms of evidence? Well, so there's biological evidence that was collected that has gone missing. There's actually, I believe, um, I'm finding my list really quick. There's, I believe it's like 13 pieces of evidence that were taken to the FBI, that were collected and taken to the FBI lab. Um, so the biggest piece of evidence is the rape kit. There was a rape kit that was collected, and it was taken to the FBI lab in Raleigh, and then it's gone missing. And the state, during the oral arguments, one of the judges, um, she kept asking the state, you know, she said, well, there was a rape kit collected, correct? And the state said yes, and then she goes, well, where's the rape kit? And the state's attorney could not say, we don't know. And she said, well, how do you have a rape case without a rape kit? And then that's when the state's attorney said, well, back in the 70s, we didn't really rely heavily on, you know, forensic evidence or biological evidence. So it was like, um, so then why did you collect it if you didn't rely on it? You know, it's just kind of, it was basically a silly, uh, ridiculous, pathetic response by the state. Um, so there, um, there is pubic hair that was taken from Ronnie and head hair that was taken from Ronnie that, um, we have no idea where that's at. Um, and there are red hairs that were found in the toboggan that um, do not match Ronnie. It's obviously, he never had red hair. He's bald now, but his hair was black. Um, and those that hair was analyzed by the FBI lab, and it was um, the agent who had like, over 20 years' experience concluded that the hairs did not, not match Ronnie. Um, the state tried to, after that agent passed away, the state tried to argue that... Uh, that they, they were not able to tell us that it could be a dog hair or a human hair, um, which was untrue. Did those hairs go um, so, No, they still have the hairs that this courts deny Ronnie the DNA testing because uh, at his original trial, one of his attorneys, who's still living, put the toboggan on his head um, at trial, which we're like, why would you do that? But he's still living. He could, you know, he could uh, give his hair for DNA testing, you know, to match against you know, whatever hair, if that, you know, if that's the issue, they just, so they keep denying it um, from him. So there was, um, and then also there's the, the victim's clothing is missing, which is, uh, which is also taken. Yeah. And then the head and pubic hair taken from the victim. Um, so it's like her nightgown and everything. We have pictures of it, but there's no, we have no idea where it's at. Um, and I mean, the biggest thing is just the rape kit. That a rape kit was collected and it was never tested. It could be tested today if we knew where it was hiding. Um, and I really think it's hiding somewhere with the Concord Police Department, you know, or the Tavares County. So you VA. think it's hiding rather than destroyed? Yeah. I mean, because, you know, there's been a lot of cases where some detectives like kept it in his, you know, drawer or something like that. But, um, I don't know if I don't know if Eisenhower because he's the one that personally handled the evidence and took it to the FBI lab in Raleigh. But I don't know if he's smart enough to actually have destroyed the evidence because he was dumb enough. Thankfully for us, he was dumb enough to take the evidence to get tested so there's record of the evidence. Because usually, if you're going to frame somebody, like you don't even take the evidence to get tested, you know, because then there's no pro there's no proof of, of its existence. So thankfully, he was dumb enough and took the evidence to get tested. So we have proof that this evidence did exist. This was brought to the FBI lab on May 11th, 1976. And then it was released back 
to the Concord Police Department. Like where, so where is it? You know, so it's all the Concord police officers, you know, I don't know if, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that somebody, ha- you know, um, held on to it because then we could actually find, you know, who uh, committed the crime. But um, even if they didn't hang on to it, it's still proof that, you know, they intentionally lost it. Yeah, it seems like this is more of a case where where it was a sloppy investigation rather than a frame job. But that's just based off of what I've seen so far. Yeah, um, I mean that, and that's very. Um, I mean, that's pretty true because it was, you know, the, the alleged victim was uh, a prominent white woman in Concord with connections to the Cannon Mills family. Um, that's a huge power family in North Carolina. Um, and really with national ties, you know what I mean? So it was, some, you know, something, a crime happened to somebody, you know, one of the elites or whatever, and so they wanted it solved immediately. Somebody needed to go down for it, you know, because you can't attack one of the rich white people in Concord, and it goes unsolved. So what's the state's position through all of this? Are they saying that the evidence was just not sufficient to change the mind of the jury? So that's very interesting. Um, the state had been arguing that. However, the current um, attorney general of North Carolina, when he was a senator, I had contacted him about Ronnie Long, um, you know, because I felt he would, uh, you know, I guess, feel something towards us some justice. And, you know, he had said, send me, you know, send me, you know, files and take a look. And um, then when I saw that he was running for attorney general, I was, you know, I told him, I said, hey, look, I'll vote for you. I'll get other people to vote for you. You know, if you just do what's right for Ronnie, like do do the right thing, not asking you to do anything, breaking the law or anything like that. Just, you know, don't, don't fight against them in court. Um, and then he did become the attorney general and it's, they kind of, um, they still do the filings, you know, his office still does the filings, but it's like, they're not even trying you know, it's as if they're just filing them because like, that's what they're supposed to do. Cause they're not, I guess the parent, you know, it's a big deal for the, for the, you know, the DA or something to turn around and admit that somebody messed up somewhere, you know, and the, the state's at fault or the Concord police, you know, are at fault. Um, but they're not really doing a good attempt either of, of, I guess, trying to fight us or argue against that. So it's like, it's as if they're just filing things just to file them. You know, it's really better if they just said, hey, look, an injustice had been done, but then that would make, then it comes into the whole compensation thing, and that would, like, make, you know, the Concord police right there, like, uh, liable, financially liable and stuff, and so that's where the politics come into play there. So that's why I guess the state essentially is not uh, just dropping the fight, but they're not really uh, putting up, up much of a fight. So what do you think the chances are that this can get overturned? I don't know. You know, the more I learn about, you know, our system and everything, the more, I guess, I guess the more hope I lose in a way. Because, I mean, based on the evidence and everything, I mean, it's no doubt in my mind, you know, Ronnie should be freed. They should rule in his favor, you know, the Fourth Circuit, I mean. But seeing how the courts are and everything, um, you know, one of the judges who happened to be an older white man, he was he was stuck on 
um, he was just stuck on why we came, we skipped over the state district courts and came to the federal court with this new evidence. So he was all stuck on the procedural aspect of it when it was like, dude, who cares about the procedure? An innocent person has lost 43 years of their lives. It's time to do what is right. Like through the damn procedure and how the courts are so, yes, we skipped over the states because the state needs to be held accountable and they're not. We already know. The federal judges, judges know, the attorneys know, everyone knows that we argue this stuff in state, the state courts are still going to rule against Ronnie and make us go to federal court. You know, so I guess that that's the part that worries me is that, you know, the, the little BS things like that, where, you know, the one judge is, oh, well, you know, it's procedural, you know, you went, you, you came to us when, aren't you supposed to go to the state district court before you come, you know, before you take your appeal to the fourth circuit and it's like, no, okay, we get it. But, you know, you could you could just focus on the really important things here. You know, that's not so much important as this is. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I don't know. I mean, Ronnie's, Ronnie's very confident. Um, you know, they're going to do what's right. Uh, you know, yeah, I was so going to ask you, um, you know, how does how Ronnie view all of this? I mean, he... He's definitely ready to get out. I mean, he, he feels that he's like, you know, how can the Fourth Circuit, you know, see what my attorney presented and, and not rule in my favor? Um, you know, and I mean, and even if they were to make him go back to, you know, the state courts and stuff, I mean, his attorneys have, you know, they have, you know, they have other options. You know, this isn't, this is just plan A, you know, so they, there's definitely um, different options for him. All of this would, this is the quickest option, I guess him to get out even though it's still taking a long time um it's been years back and forth filings with this um habeas petition but they uh you know this is this is the quickest option essentially for ronnie so how'd to get you free get, so that's why yeah how'd you get involved in this case in the first place um so i was living in concord north carolina um i had moved there i guess in 2012 um and i was actually living like in ronnie's neighborhood i didn't mean i i had no idea but um a friend was murdered and at a vigil that uh the neighborhood had put on for you know the, um the friend i started talking to some people and uh one of my neighbors had said oh you might be interested in uh this other case you know ronnie long because um, we were talking about injustices because we felt like our friend had done been done unjustly as well who had just been murdered so I was like, oh, okay, you know, I was like, I'll check it out. And I didn't think much of it. I actually kind of forgot about it. And like the next day I had ran into her husband after I was uh, running my dogs in the morning. And I was like, oh, yeah, your wife told me to Google some name and whatever. And he's like, oh, it's probably Ronnie Long. So I was like, okay. And so later that afternoon I was waiting for my best friend to come over. And I just entered, you know, Ronnie Long, Concord, North Carolina into Google. And um, I came across uh, a news clip from WCNC with Stuart Watson and then also the article um, by Stuart Watson as well. And I watched the little clip, news clip, and I read the article and I was just like mortified. Um, I mean, I was just like, holy crap. Like, first I was like, how is this? I, I didn't know how Ronnie had managed to stay alive this long. Because back when I came across the case, it was like 37, 38 years he had been in. I was like, holy crap. Like, um, uh, you know, how is he even still alive after that long? Because, I don't know. I mean, me personally, I couldn't fight that long. I mean, man, you know, it's, I get arrested and I have to stay overnight or something. I mean, I don't think I'm going to make it out, 
you know, I mean, I'm not joking either, you know, it's, I mean, you know, so it's, it's not a very serious thing. So I just, uh, I don't know, my heart went out to him. Um, and I, I just felt like I needed to help him. I didn't really know what I could do, but I was like, I'm pretty resourceful. Um, and I knew that you could, uh, I knew that you could look inmates up online, you know, and so I looked him up and found out the prison he was at and found out, you know, the mailing at, uh, mailing address. And then I shot him a letter and I was just like, told him a little bit about myself and said I wanted to help and he didn't really have an option. Um, and I was like, just as a forewarning, like I'm a broke college student, but I am resourceful. <laughs> and, uh, and then it, you know, just took off from there, I guess. And what kinds of work have you done uh, on his behalf? Um, well, I started a petition. There's a petition we have on moveon.org. Um, and mostly it's like bringing awareness. Um, so I, I, I guess essentially I, I got, I found him as attorneys that he currently has right now. So, you know, that's a big deal because he really, that was the main thing when I came along, his case had just been put with the commission, Innocence Required Commission. So there was really nothing that could be done on it while they investigated it. Um, so, you know, I got the petition going for him. Um, I started a Facebook page and there's, we have Instagram and Twitter. I'm um, the biggest following inside the Facebook page. Um, and then we also, um, in my social media stuff, I've come across a lot of other supporters that have been like, that are now like, you know, we consider very good friends and very strong supporters. I mean, there's a man in Texas who has flown to North Carolina three times now and visited with Ronnie. He, um, he, he's been a huge financial help, uh, to Ronnie as far as, um, you know, making sure Ronnie's taken care of so he can make phone calls, get what he needs from the canteen, um, things like that. Um, you know, and he, he's been speaking to, uh, his community, the community down where he lives in Texas. So that's, uh, pretty cool. And while well, Ronnie's mother actually had flown to Texas, uh, I think a couple of years back and, uh, the, the supporter in Texas had gone and visited her cause she had ended up in the hospital and he went and visited with her. Um, and then, uh, another supporter who was actually, uh, knew Ronnie's family and Ronnie's father marched with them back in the seventies. He, he's from Kannapolis and he now lives in Georgia. He and his wife uh, came across the Facebook page and reached out to me and said, we have supporters here in Georgia that, um, you know, we've gotten together and we have the money and we want to purchase a domain and make a website for him. And, you know, if that would be OK, which I was like, absolutely, because, you know, I, I've been wanting to have a website for him. that's like a central location. You can go. It's just everything Ronnie Long takes you to, you know, the Facebook, you know, takes you to all social media links and the petition and, and everything. And so. They set that up, and that's the freerunningthong.org, and that's been going for a few years. Um, and oh, and also, I want to say the guy in Texas that also has a good friend who lives all the way in New Zealand, who is a, a big Ronnie support, who's a big Ronnie supporter, and writes Ronnie every uh, every month. And he actually helped Ronnie to make the news in New Zealand. Um, so there was a little there was a little news article about uh, Ronnie Long in New Zealand. Um, so I guess I, I've just helped bring about the awareness. Uh, for Ronnie, like my car is covered in pre-Ronnie Long stickers, and my back windshield, I have I pay to have like these four lines wrote out. Um, I have a bunch of apparel. I try to make I try to be like a walking billboard. So I just kind of, you know, I when I when I got involved from the outside, you know, looking into this, it was like Ronnie needed to Ronnie needs to have his name pushed out there all the time, like persistence, you know, until finally people are like, oh my gosh, like. 
just free this guy. I'm tired of hearing his name. You know, I'm tired of seeing his name all over. Like, just get this guy out. Like, you know, like, um, cause you know, his family and friends, you know, they haven't stopped fighting for him, but I mean, 40, you know, over, you know, when I got involved 38 years, so it was like over three decades of fighting. I mean, you know, at people age, they pass away, their health fails, you know, they, they get married, they have children, they have jobs, you know? So it's like, you know, things and, and they're in no fault to no fault to anybody because, you know, you can't, in order to help somebody else, you got to be able to take care of yourself too. So, um, you know, so there's no fault in anyone here. It's just, um, you know, it's people dying off, you know, and so it's like, it was like a renewed, and also there's, I think I feel kind of like a little bit of a generational gap as far as like the internet and everything. Cause once Ronnie got onto the internet, it's really helped, um, you know, bring a lot more awareness, but, um, yeah, so that's that's what I've been doing is um, trying to keep Ronnie's name alive and keep pushing him in everyone's faces and um, you know try to I'm trying to get him to go viral, which I have not been successful yet, but you know there's still there's still hope. <laughs> Do we have any sense for when the Fourth Circuit's going to issue a ruling, or is that just a mystery? No, it's I mean that's a million dollar question. We have no idea. They've already ruled on all the cases that were heard the same day as Ronnie's, um, you know. So it's yeah, we have, we have no idea. It's, it's past the, it's past the time frame. So every day at two thirty, the court updates their website um, for they update their website, and um, you know, so we check it every day. I'm checking it, uh, you know, two thirty to see if you know they made a decision for Ronnie yet, um, which is usually a no. Unfortunately, um, yeah. So yeah, there's no, you have no idea. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, informing us about Ronnie Long's case. Well, thank you um, for having me, and I'm glad to do it. And thank you for everything that you are doing for um, those incarcerated. Thank you. That was Ashley Long, uh, the wife of Ronnie Long, who has been in prison for 43 years, um, and. Just to give people a sense for the legal issues. So the question comes down to whether or not there's a reasonable probability that the suppressed evidence would have altered the outcome. And there's a dispute over that because uh, from the wrongful conviction clinic at Duke, uh, their attorney is arguing that the real question is whether or not the trial was fundamentally unfair. And he argues, had, had jurors known that the forensic evidence didn't put Mr. Long at the scene and that law enforcement officers falsely testified and falsified reports to ensure that the latest test results remain concealed. He believes that uh, the jury would have discounted the victim's identification and that that was a fundamental unfairness in the, in the law. And unfortunately, this is the kind of case we see all the time. The evidence is thin. The evidence is based strictly on the eyewitness identification. They were not able to generate any other evidence. And, and, and so now uh, you have this guy who's been in prison for so long, his, and the victim's long since uh, uh, deceased, and uh, he's still in there uh, serving his 80-year sentence. This has been the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwell. Join us again for another episode.